This evening we'll be in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. The time of Jesus' death is drawing near, as we'll see in the first couple verses here. Yet Jesus does not become sullen and useless. He continues to fulfill the Father's will, specifically He sets out to establish a memorial that will be observed from the time of His departure all the way until His coming return, even for us. Passover is approaching. Passover for them was on the 14th day of the first month, and that's where we are in Luke's narrative. It's just before the time of Jesus' death, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, follows the Passover uh, seven days, and in fact includes the first day of the feast is the Passover. And it was a time when every Jew, wherever they lived, was supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate these two things. And so it would be a time of of a population swell, uh, that is, Normally, there would be between thirty to 50,000 people within the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. But during this time, there would be around 200,000. And so, it was a time in which there was a great celebration and the Passover was supposed to be celebrated within the city walls, which we'll see here in the text. And Jesus is preparing here His disciples to to be faithful even while He's gone. And while He's preparing them, the Jewish religious leaders are plotting to kill Him. So let me read our text for us tonight, which begins in chapter 22 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? and He will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as He had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, 
this cup which is poured out for you in the new covenant of My blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying Me is with Mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom He is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have been turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with, without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus spends some of his last hours with his disciples. And he's teaching them what it looks like to be selfless servants like He is. Jesus is a selfless servant and He's teaching His followers how to be selfless servants. And so we, we see uh, four... Let me just double check. Five main principles, excuse me, uh, in this passage tonight. First, followers of Jesus must never forget His sacrifice for them. Followers of Jesus must never forget His sacrifice for them. Verses 1-23. to this is the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's not a transformation or a changing of the Passover that they were used to celebrating. This is a brand new uh, celebration, reminder that Jesus had established for His followers so that they would remember what He had done for them. But before we get there, we have to see what's happening in the meantime, in the background. There's a plot to kill Him. And verses 2-6, through six, the chief priests and the scribes are fed up with Jesus and His popularity. They've tried to trap Him with all sorts of questions in front of the people so that He can look fool, fool, like a fool and that they could uh, have Him arrested, but they fail. And they already know what they want to do with Him. They want Him to be destroyed. They want to kill Him. But they don't know how to bring it about. And they also know that if they're going to arrest Him, they need to do it in secret. Look at verse 6. 
So he consented, Judas did, and began seeking a good opportunity to betray to them apart, betray Christ to them apart from the crowd. So Judas recognized he had to do this in secret. He couldn't just bring Jesus before them. There would be a huge riot. Remember, there are probably at least 200,000 Jews from all over, and they've heard stories and seen what Jesus has done over the last three years, and they consider Jesus to be now a national hero. That's what Jesus looks like in the eyes of the people. Even though not all have accepted Him, they've just seen that He's come to heal. He's done these miracles. We're amazed by His teaching. And so if He is arrested in front of this crowd uh, for trumped-up charges or false charges, then the, the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans would have a riot on their hands. And so they, need to, they know that they need to do this in secret. And that's where Judas comes in. Judas conspires in verses 3-6 through six with the religious leaders in order to hand Jesus over to them in secret. And as we're going to see, it happens at dark. It happens at a time when you know, the, these soldiers don't recognize Him. They have to be shown who He is. That's why Jesus or, or Judas betrays Him with a kiss so that they know which one is Jesus, which one to arrest, and so on. This happens in the cloak of darkness. Then they can try Him kind of all through the night and then again in the morning. And we'll see that next week. In verses 7 to 13, they prepare for Passover. The day of the week now is Thursday. This is the final day here before Jesus is crucified. And it's the day in which the Jews would celebrate Passover. This had to be done, I mentioned earlier, within the city walls of Jerusalem, which made uh, real estate at a premium. Uh, it, would, it would be probably very expensive. Uh, in order to get a room to, to, to be able to celebrate this, but, but that's what the Jews were supposed to do. Jesus, in verse 8, sends Peter and John to prepare the meal that the disciples are going to share with Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of work to do. Um, and so He sends them. He doesn't give them an exact location because if He had given them an exact location, then Judas could have used that to tell the chief priests and the scribes uh, where that was going to be, and they could have met Jesus there and arrested Him on the spot. So what Jesus does, He says, alright, you, Peter and John, you go, and when you see a guy carrying a jug of water, follow him into a building. Of course, Judas is going to be with Jesus during that time, so he's not going to know until they actually arrive at the meal. And uh, so basically what Jesus is doing here is He's giving Peter and John veiled instructions. They don't even know where they're going exactly. They just know they need to find a guy and follow him. Now, the, the way that they follow Him is by, Jesus says, verse 10, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow Him. And we think, this city is crowded. You're going to meet a man carrying a jug of water? Well, the reason He gave that instruction is because in the ancient Near East, particularly in Jerusalem, men didn't carry jugs of water in general. That was the, the job of the woman. Similar to what we saw in Africa uh, when we were there a few years ago, that, that it was the women who were carrying everything. They were just extremely talented to be able to carry these heavy loads on their head. And in fact, you often see on the road that a man was walking right alongside of a woman not carrying anything. She, she felt, uh, uh, in their culture, they see it as, as her responsibility. Uh, so Jesus says, when you see someone like that, you see a guy carrying a, a jug of water, follow him. He's going to stick out. Follow him. Just follow him into the building that he's going into. And uh, this very well could be a miracle on the part of Jesus that he's setting up all these things in advance. Or it could be that he just prepared all this in advance. 
Like I think what happened with the, the donkey that he had prepared for his triumphal entry. I think he, he had prepared this in advance, kept it secret because of the great plot against his life. He was not going to allow Judas to bring about premature death, premature arrest and death, uh, murder. Um, and he was going to, yes, allow himself to be arrested, but not on Judas's timetable, right? On, on his own timetable. And so he prepares this, this place where they could meet and have this Passover meal. Jesus uses this in preparation for their next meal together. Their next meal together after this one that's recorded here. Uh, certainly they, they have some meals, I guess, when Jesus returns after He's resurrected. But the next time He eats the bread and drinks the fruit of the vine, it says here in the text, will not be until the kingdom comes. And so Jesus is preparing them for a time in which He will be away. We're going to have this bread and this cup together, but the next time we're going to have these two elements together is in the kingdom. I want you to be prepared. And, and notice how exciting, excited He is to be there. Verse 15, And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, in case it's not clear, disciples, I am going to suffer. I've already predicted that to you on multiple occasions that I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans and they're going to kill me. But then I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. Disciples still don't understand that. Remember the first time they heard it, Peter said, no, this is not possible. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right. So, but Jesus says, look at how excited he is. He says, I have earnestly desired. Literally, I have desired with desire. That's the way they would say it in the Greek. I have desired with desire. He's a man who recognizes that his end is near and he wants to spend quality time with the people that he loves most. People that he spent the last three years with and who, with whom he has a, a deep relationship. So he says, I have earnestly desired to spend time with you before I suffer. In verses 16-18, through 18, if they hadn't got the idea that he's going to suffer, he explains it again. Again, at the end of verse 15, before I suffer. Verse 16, I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. He says in verse 18, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God. So he's saying, listen, if you haven't picked up on it yet, this is the last time we're having this kind of meal together. This is the last time we're going to break bread and drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom. Now, you, you might have noticed that there are two cups that are mentioned here in verse 17. When he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. And then verse 20, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying... Um, so it's not exactly clear what's going on, why there are two cups, but, but it could be because in the Jewish observance of Passover, they actually uh, pass four cups of, of this uh, grape drink that they're drinking. Um, and so uh, probably some kind of wine. Um, and so uh, very likely that's one of, of those cups that are being passed. And, and he's just doing it twice. We observe, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we take one cup and one piece of bread as representative of the whole. So, in verses 19 through 20, he shares the cup and the bread. Notice verse 19 that the bread represents his body. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
If you've been in church for a long time, um, you know that we believe here that the bread is not the actual body of Christ, right? But that it represents it represents what He has given. That He has given His body for us. It actually reminds us. It it brings to remembrance His body. That's why we have these words here on the on the Lord's Supper table in front of me. But notice the words of verse 19, because what the way that we practice the Lord's Supper seems to be inconsistent with what Jesus says. Notice what He says. He says, this is My body. Now, the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is we have to know what the meaning of is is. And it sounds, sounds familiar, right? Um, sounds kind of dangerous, actually, to try to change the, the meaning of is. But let me just give you some historical um, uh, just instruction here. Catholics historically have taken this, as you probably understand, to believe that the word is actually means is, that it, it's this of the same essence. That when Jesus says, this is my body, he's saying, this piece of bread is my body. So what they do is they have these softer wafers that they put in their mouth, the priest puts it in their mouth for them, and it supposedly, what, becomes the body of Christ. And then, of course, the, the wine or the juice becomes the blood of Christ because they take that word is literally in the sense that it is of the essence of Christ's body, Christ's blood. We believe, however, that the word is means something else. We believe that when he says this is my body, that he's saying this represents my body, don't we? That this represents my body. That the word is is a representation. Here's why. Look at the verse 19 again. Okay, I just want to make sure we're clear from the text. He says, This is my body, which is given for you. Then this is the phrase. This is the key phrase. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, so, so what he's saying here is this represents my body, so do it as a memorial of what I've done, what I've given for you. It's a memorial. In other words, by that last phrase, do this in remembrance of me, he's actually explaining what he means by is. He's not saying this is of the essence of, uh, of um, this bread. This bread doesn't actually become me or is me in that sense. It represents me. And the use of is as, as representative can be illustrated with a sports analogy because you, it, you might be thinking, well, that sounds like kind of a stretch to use is as representative. But I think um, perhaps a sports analogy would help. They usually do in my, in my case. All right. The hockey playoffs are going on right now. And the coaches and players are known to make pep talks to each other. A lot of times it's the coach, but sometimes it's some of the key stars or former stars will come in the locker room and give these big pep talks. And one of the things that they might say is, this game is our season. This game is our life. And we automatically know what they're talking about. Okay, Now, now is, is the coach saying that the whole season is just one game? No, he knows that it's 82 games in a season. And he's saying that the... He, uh, he's not saying that the whole life that all of their life comes down to one hockey game and that nothing else is worth living for. No, these people all have, generally, uh, have wife and kids. They have family outside of this. They live for other things other than hockey. Obviously, hockey becomes one of their biggest things. But he's saying, listen, 
this game is our season, this game is our life, he's basically saying that their whole season comes down to this game or this game represents our season. How we do in this game represents our whole season. Or how we do in this, this game represents our whole life. Right? All the things that you've worked on from Pee Wee all the way up to the National Hockey League, um, this represents your life and what you've worked for. So even though they're using the word is in that way, uh, they still can even represent. I think there are certainly other examples we could point to, but, but I think um, the, the main idea here can be seen at the end of verse 19. Do this in a remembrance of me. Jesus is explaining what he meant. So in that sense, we understand the Scriptures to teach that what the Catholics are doing is wrong, is, is opposed to God, and actually um, it, it's a consistent with the rest of their theology, which actually, that's why they call it a Mass, right? They're, they're actually re-sacrificing the body of Christ. They're actually re-sacrificing each time that they take that bread and they drink that cup. And we think that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient based on what the Scriptures teach. It is sufficient, and there's no more re-sacrificing that's necessary. Okay? His, his death and resurrection is once for all paid for. No more has to be added to it. And so what we're doing is we're not changing anything about the cross. We're not changing anything about Christ. We're not having Christ in our body in, in that sense, in a literal sense. But rather, we are simply being reminded it's a memorial of what um, Christ has done. It's also a it's also a um, a precursor to what he will do. That's why he says in verse sixteen, "I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God." And then verse eighteen, "I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes." Paul says it this way. You know, as often as you drink this bread, or eat this bread, excuse me, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So, it is both retrospective and prospective, isn't it? We look back to the cross, but we look forward to the coming kingdom. And that's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. We're thinking about what Christ has done so we never forget that great sacrifice that He's made. And so, He just sets up a way in which His followers can, can always be reminded of His death and His resurrection. And it also looks forward to our future resurrection. As long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So, same idea is there in verse 20 with regard to the cup. This cup is um, poured out for you and is the new covenant of my blood. So, followers of Jesus first must never forget His sacrifice for them. Number two, these will be faster, I promise. Followers of Jesus often serve alongside imposters. Followers of Jesus often serve alongside imposters. So if we're going to be uh, followers of Christ, we need to recognize that there are just going to be some imposters. Verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, listen, one of you who has a hand on the table with me is going to betray me. So He says in verse 21, one of you has a hand on the table with me. And so they look around, probably there's all of them with their hand on the table at this point. And um, what we see here is that Jesus knows very clearly that He is going to be betrayed. Look at verse 22. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. 
Jesus knew that He was going to be betrayed. Why? Because God already planned it. God had planned that Judas would betray Him, but notice who's responsible for this. The end of verse 22. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Here again, we see this idea of God's sovereignty. He's planned it. He's planned that this evil act will take place. But at the same time, human responsibility right next to that. But woe to that man by whom uh, this will take place. So God had predetermined that Jesus would be betrayed. It was no surprise to Jesus that He was betrayed. It was no surprise that Jesus went to the cross. God had it planned before the foundation of the world that Jesus would go to the cross for your sin. He, he knew that. And, um, and so this is no surprise. And yet, those who put Him on the cross, those who actually betrayed Him, are responsible, aren't they? And that's what we see here in this text. Now, notice the confusion of the disciples, as we can imagine, in verse 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this. Actually, you may not have thought about this, but maybe it's just, oh, it's obvious Judas was always that wicked one. We, we surely thought it was him. But they're looking around saying, who did this? Which one of us could possibly betray him? Are you kidding me? That they would hand him over to the authorities? You see, G- Judas was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And yet none of the rest of them had any clue that he was an unbeliever. And so what we learn from this is that we as followers of Jesus will often serve alongside imposters. People who are um, wolves in sheep's clothing. We'll talk about that at the end. Number three, followers of Jesus must understand that true greatness comes from service. Followers of Jesus must understand that true greatness comes from service. Verses 24 to 30. There are two main principles that Jesus makes here. Verses 24 to 27 is that servants are viewed as great by God. God views servants as great. And then secondly, servants will be rewarded in the next life. So first, servants are viewed by God as great. Verses 24 to 27. There's this uh, argument that arises. Apparently, it might have stemmed from this. One of you is going to be betrayed. Or one of you is going to betray me, and maybe as a result they start to talk talk amongst themselves and say, "Well, I, you know, it's not going to be me because I'm I'm one of the greatest of all twelve of us." It could have been that way, or it could have been that Luke's just recording something later on in the conversation. Whatever the case is, they are talking about who is the greatest, who should be seen as the greatest. And Jesus responds to them and says, "Listen, um, you know how the the kings of the Gentiles, the rulers of this world." Lord their authority over people. They're, they're most concerned with what? They're, they're most concerned with recognition, power, people uh, giving them proper respect. That's why those who have authority over them are called benefactors, verse 25 reads. Benefactors were those in power who uh, were recognized by the people as having power. So, listen, you know, you need to respect me, uh, give me the reverence that is due to me, that sort of thing. Jesus said, that's how it is in the secular world. That's how the Gentiles do it. The pagans do it. But, but that's not the way it is with God, is it? Verses 26 and 27. Instead, if you're going to be great, if you want to be seen as great, particularly by God, then you need to be like the youngest. The youngest was the one who has no authority and no recognition And so Jesus explains greatness in terms of this illustration in verse 27. 
Look at verse 27. For who is greater? He wants to drive home this point that those who serve are the greatest. Who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Answer? The one who reclines, right? The one who's being served. That's the one who's greater. That's Jesus says, is not that the one who reclines at the table? And we would say, yes, that's the one who's greater. But then he twists it, doesn't he? He turns it on his head and he says this, but I'm among you as the one who serves. What had just happened earlier in the evening? According to John's Gospel, he washed their feet. I'm the one with the towel, right? I'm the one serving you. So let's talk about greatness. What is it in God's eyes? Is it the one who, who is being served or the one who's serving? He had washed their feet, according to John 13. The, the point here is not... You know, start out small in your acts of service and then one day you're going to be noticed and you won't have to do any of those menial tasks anymore. Here's his point. Doing menial tasks is actually the definition of service. That's the definition of spiritual greatness in the eyes of God. Don't think that, you know, when I do these things it seems to go unnoticed, they're not important. For eternity. God says, listen, be willing to serve other people. Do what is most beneficial for their spiritual well-being and recognize that God will not forget that. Jesus says, look at me. Look at what I've done. Now, we might think, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, that's kind of a one-time thing, right? You know, He, he did that at one time just to show them so they would learn and then they would do it. But that's never going to happen again. But listen to Luke 12:37. Jesus says, "Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes." That's every single believer. When he finds them on the alert when he comes, truly I say to you that he, the master, will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up on, and wait on them. You know what's going to happen? At the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, do you know who's going to be serving you? It's going to be Christ. We're going to be like Peter. You can't do this. Take the towel off, Christ. Give it to me. I'll, I'll do it. Of course, we won't say that because at that point we'll be fully redeemed. We'll recognize what true greatness is. But Jesus is going to wash your feet. He's going to serve you. That's greatness. Okay? There is greatness in service. We, we don't see that as much. We want to be noticed. We want to, to be seen. We want people to recognize us. That's what the Gentiles do. That's how they view greatness. Jesus says, God doesn't view greatness in that way. He views greatness in terms of service. And then he goes on to encourage them, verses 28 to 30, not just to show them the principle, but also to encourage them. Listen, you will not be forgotten in the next life. Verses 28 to 30, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. You, you've been there. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that to you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones. So don't worry about recognition in this lifetime. Who is the greatest? All of your acts of service will be recognized in the next life. And he says, you will sit at a table with me, verses 29 and 30, and you will sit on thrones with me. 
you will be in a position of greatness. So, followers of Jesus must never forget His sacrifice for them. Followers of Jesus often serve alongside of imposters. We need to be wary of that. Thirdly, followers of Jesus must understand that true greatness comes from service. And then number four, followers of Jesus are the primary targets of Satan and his demons. Followers of Jesus are the primary targets of Satan and his demons. Verses 31 to 34. Jesus brings the disciples back to reality by speaking to them as a whole, showing them that Satan is opposed to believers. Specifically, Jesus wants them to know that Satan has asked permission from God the Father to sift them like wheat. The pronoun in verse 31 is plural. So he says, Simon, Simon. Sounds like he's only talking about Simon, but actually it's plural. So it's Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanding, demanded permission to sift you all like wheat. We, that doesn't come through very well in the English text, but in the Greek it is plural. So he's saying, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift you all like wheat. And then verse 32 goes back to singular. But I've prayed for you individually, Simon. Okay, specifically for you, that your faith may not fail. And that you, specifically Simon, when once you've turned again, you would strengthen your brothers. Satan is opposed to believers. What does it mean that Satan wants to sift the disciples, and I would say by extension, sift us like wheat? What, what does that mean? Well, once all the wheat stalks are harvested, the wheat needs to be separated from the chaff, right? But the chaff is attached to the stalk just like the wheat. And so in the ancient Near East, the farmer would, would either beat the wheat wheat stalks violently with some kind of mallet or they would shake these whole stalks violently until the, the, um, the wheat and the chaff would fall to the ground. And then you would have basically this pile of wheat and chaff. They would throw the wheat and the chaff up into the air and the chaff so light that it just flies away with the wind and the wheat falls back to the ground. That's how they would kind of um, uh, distill that process, so to speak. And so what Satan's asking to do is to sift the disciples like wheat. He wants to perform on them what a farmer would do to those wheat stalks. He wants to shake them up violently. He wants to hammer them out. He wants to bring... I don't think the idea here is physical harm, but rather spiritual harm. He wants them to to give up on the race. And what Jesus wants Peter to know is, verse 32, that he is on their side. He is on Peter's side. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed for you individually that your faith may not fail. Notice what Jesus does not pray for. He doesn't say, I pray that Satan wouldn't be able to do the sifting. Instead, he prays, that Peter would be able to make it through the trial without abandoning the faith. He doesn't say, God, don't bring this trial. He doesn't say, don't let Satan sift him like wheat. Don't do the, sh- the violent shaking. Instead, he says, give him the strength to go through. Look at it again, verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's not about the sifting. That's still going to happen. The trial is still going to come. Jesus' prayer is that the faith would be strengthened. The faith of Peter. And this gives us a window into several things. First, Jesus is more concerned with your sanctification than your personal comfort, isn't He? 
He, he didn't ask for you to be removed from the trial. Often the way that Jesus is going to pray for you is that you actually go through the trial, but have your strength, your faith strengthened, that it does not fail. Second thing we learned is that God gives permission for Satan to shift, to shake your spiritual life violently, and somehow He's able to show His mercy through it all. That one of the reasons I think that Jesus doesn't pray for you to actually not have the trial at all is because it actually highlights God's glory. Read Ephesians three sometime, and see how you are on display before all of the rulers of this world, that is, the, the, the spiritual rulers, both demons and angels, I believe that's referring to. That they are watching as if they're sitting in a grandstand. You're on display, and how you respond during faith, uh, or during trials, how you respond is a, spe- is a specific testament to how great our God is. Or how much, how little we care about our God. Jesus' goal for Peter is found at the end of verse 32. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. One of the other reasons that Jesus wants, I think, Peter to go through this trial, or is not asking that he doesn't, is so that he can actually learn from this and teach others. I want you to strengthen your brothers. These other guys here and other believers that will come along, I want you to strengthen them because you know what it's like to be shaken and yet still stand on the other end. We're going to look at that next week when we come to, I think, the time in which Satan actually does shake him with these three denials of Christ. And although Peter, we would say, failed in that way, he ultimately didn't fail because he got back up and he continued on in the the faith. He was restored. Number five, followers of Jesus must be prepared for fierce opposition. Verses 35 to 38, followers of Jesus must be prepared for fierce opposition. Jesus reminds them of the necessity for provisions. Now, first He says, do you remember how it was in chapter 9, verse 3? Do you remember how I sent you out in twos and I told you, don't take any possessions with you. Don't take any bag. Don't take any money. Don't take a sword. Just go to the city and see if someone will accept you. If they do, then give them the gospel. If not, shake the dust from your feet and leave. Do you remember that? Remember how I provided for you? You said, did you ever have anything they needed? And they said, no, nothing. Okay. Now, things are different. Grab your bag. Grab your money. And if you don't have a sword, go buy one. That's what he says in verse 36. The end of the verse says, whoever has no sword, sell your coat and buy one. And I think the point here is that you must prepare for hostility. It's coming. Because from now on, when you go out with this message, don't expect the people to come and embrace you with open arms. Expect opposition. You're going to need your own provisions. You're going to need a sword. What does Jesus mean by a sword? There, there is some discussion among uh, scholars as to what this is. Is this a literal sword or a figurative? It could be a figurative sword that they need their sword to fight with spiritual strength against the spiritual enemies. They need these spiritual weapons like they're talked about in Ephesians 6. Or it could be literal. And I, I take it to be literal because everything else in verse 36 seems to be literal, right? Take the bag. Uh, take your money belt. Take your bag. That seems to be literal. It doesn't sound like he's saying some kind of a spiritual provision there. So if he's saying that, then it seems to make sense that he would be saying 
so take also a sword. Not that they need to force people to change with their sword, but you need to use it for self-defense. That the people are going to be so opposed to you that you need to protect yourself with this sword. And uh, so they say in verse 38, we have two daggers, is that enough? Um, and Jesus says, it is enough. So, again, if he's talking figuratively, and again, if you take it that way, I don't think there's anything sinful about that or, or wrong necessarily. I just I, I lean towards the literal idea. If, if you take it that way, that it is uh, figurative, then basically what Jesus is saying is, listen, it's enough. You, you don't quite understand. And then, uh, obviously, when he when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, then Jesus is saying, see, you didn't really understand what I meant by a sword. So that's what he could be saying. Uh, I, I honestly don't know for sure, but I, I lean toward a literal sword that Jesus is telling them to protect themselves. The call to follow Jesus demands uh, four things in conclusion here. Demands four things. Number one, the call to follow Jesus demands a backward look. It demands a backward look. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. It is a backward look. The sad part about that Thursday before Christ's death is that in verses 1 and 2, the Jews are coming from all over the earth to celebrate what? Feast day. Passover, right? They're, they're coming to celebrate Passover, which is what? God is our deliverer. He's, he's, he's given us the blood to put on the doorposts so that we can be spared from, from judgment. That's what they're coming to celebrate. That God passes over us. And yet, at the same time, while they're celebrating their deliverer, their deliverer has come and they're plotting against Him to kill Him. And so we must never forget as believers about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so we need a backward look. We, we need to be reminded of just a non-complicated, regular reminder that Jesus undeservedly gave His body and blood for us and His finished work is the source of our salvation. That's why we do that. We do it in remembrance of Him so we don't forget. Secondly, the call to follow Jesus demands a forward look. It demands a backward look, but it also demands a forward look. We must never become misguided with what is to come. Jesus is coming, and it could be at any time. you believe that? And He's coming to restore all things as they should be. And the Lord's Supper is not only a reminder of what has happened, but it's a reminder of what will happen. It's, a, it's an anticipation that we are going... We eat, these, we eat these elements and drink these cups of juice as a reminder, but we recognize that one day we will do it in His presence. It will be the next time that He has that kind of a meal and that kind of a, a memorial. It will be the next time. Number three, the call to follow Jesus demands delayed gratification. Again, we saw that true greatness comes from service. No act of service is too small for a child of God and no act of service will go unnoticed by the Father. We need to recognize that we don't live for the approval of people in this lifetime. We don't have to be noticed. We need God to notice us. And we need to recognize that that requires for us to recognize the principle of delayed gratification. There's coming a time when we will be rewarded. Number four, the call to follow Jesus demands that we throw away our rose-colored glasses. 
The call to follow Jesus demands that we throw away our rose-colored glasses. If you thought that following Jesus meant that your financial problems would go away, your marriage would be better, and that your relationships would be more unified, you're wrong. Satan and his demons are coming after you with a full-on assault and they want to shake you violently to see if you will give up on God. And do you know what? In some cases, he will be successful like he was with Judas. And that means that we will be working for the sake of God trying to do His work with people who profess to be believers in Christ but who are secretly plotting for those for, for that time when they can betray Him. And that means we need to always be on our guard. Have a healthy skepticism for the people that we work alongside. Test what they are doing, what they are saying against the Scripture. I would encourage you to do that same thing about me. Because there are times it is completely possible for a pastor to be a false teacher. That's why you need to check everything that I say against the Scriptures. Because I don't come to you on my own authority. I am seeking to come to you on the authority of the Scriptures. And you need to make sure that what I'm saying is consistent with it. And if it's not, then you need to remove me. But I would say that there are are, we need to have that healthy skepticism for each person alongside whom we work towards spiritual things. Because Paul warned us in Acts 20 that there would be some who rise up even in your own midst. That they are wolves in sheep's clothing and they will try to lead believers astray if that's possible. We need to get rid of our rose-colored glasses and just say the idea that they said they were a Christian. How could I have known? Right? I mean, they talked about Jesus. You think Judas did any of those things? I mean, he was casting out demons in the name of Christ. He was preaching in the name of Jesus. I mean, his partner that he went out with in Luke 9 was probably thinking, he's a great preacher. He did all the acts of service. He carried the money. He must have been trustworthy. And he turned away from Christ. The call to follow Jesus demands that we recognize the reality of life in a sin-cursed world. That there will be people who disguise themselves as believers. But I can encourage you, finally, that the call to follow Jesus is never lonely. You may feel alone in your struggle in the Christian faith, but you are not. Jesus is on your side like He was with Peter says, I have prayed for you, verse 32. I've prayed for you. And I believe that Jesus is praying for you now. That He is interceding on your behalf. You see, as a believer, as a, a co-worker, a partner in His work, He is on your side. He wants you to win. He wants you to overcome. And that doesn't mean that your life will be trial-free. God's going to grant permission for Satan to sift you like wheat, but He's not going to be successful ultimately because Jesus 
prays that your faith will not fail. And that's the goal. Okay, the goal is not to be to live a trial-free life. It's not going to happen. Our best life is to come. And we recognize that, that our goal is to remain faithful even during the fiercest of opposition that comes our way. And when we do, we vindicate God's glory. We show God's glory to be worthwhile. That, hey, you can take it all away. You can take my family. You can take my money. You can take my job. You can take anything. But I'm still going to serve God like Job. You know what that says about God? It says He's a worthy jewel. He's a worthy God to be followed. Why would somebody who had everything taken away still follow Him? And the angels and demons say, Praise God and praise the Lamb who was slain. And so we live in, in that light. Jesus calls us to follow His example of selfless service. Let's pray. We're thankful for the reminder of our loving Savior and that He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And we're thankful that we can be numbered among them. Lord, um, we often think of Jesus' life and His comings in two separate ways, that He came to serve, to be meek and humble in the first coming, and then the second coming He's going to come as a judge, and that certainly is true. But in the kingdom, we will see Him as a great servant of ours, not because we deserve it by any means. We don't. Um, but but it's amazing to think that that He, God the Son, God who created the world, will stoop down and serve us who are completely unworthy. Lord, how can this be? That He would love a soul like me and love a soul like those in here. And yet He does. He's willing to give up His own life so that we could have life. He was willing to take on death so that we would not have to face it. That eternal death. That eternal condemnation that comes from Your wrath because You are a holy God. We praise You for our Savior. Help us to to live our lives of selfless service, seeking Your approval most of all and uh, seeking the, the delayed gratification that comes in being rewarded in the next life. And Lord, ultimately, we want You to be praised. So help us uh, direct our minds and our thoughts in this way so that it changes the way that we live. May all the praise go to You and to our Savior, whom we love. In Jesus' name, Amen.